The Business on RT Radio 1 with AIB. We know that your focus is on your business. That's why ours is on supporting you. Well, Meta and Facebook uh, are among companies that have helped to make this country the number one destination for many US tech firms. But who really owns Ireland? This topic is explored in a new book that looks at the key players behind Irish property ownership and what it means for the rest of us. Its author, Matt Cooper, is here to shed some light on this question. Matt, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, Richard. You could look at the history of land ownership over many, many years, but most significantly in recent years, what happened in 2008, the recession, the crash, we really did see a lot of change when it came to property ownership since uh, in the wake of that. There's been an extraordinary amount of change in this country over the last decade and a half. When you mentioned the likes of the Metas and Googles and who are all such major prominent employers in Ireland and providing all of the tax revenues which are driving the country forward, they also have a very significant physical footprint in the country. And during the COVID lockdown, as we were starting to emerge from the COVID lockdown and we were allowed to take our two kilometre walks and our five kilometre walks, I started using that time to start walking around Dublin and I live centrally in Dublin. And you know the way we get sort of caught up in sort of just our normal daily routes. We go the same ways every day and we see the same things. But as I kept walking different ways with the dog to sort of entertain myself or with family or friends. Some people c- were looking at plants and flowers, Matt. <laughs> you, were, you were thinking about who owns the buildings. Well, no, that came to me as I was going on <laughs> because I was just noticing how everything was changing. And it was just quite extraordinary to see. I would walk down the canal and all these enormous buildings, which were the construction had stopped on them. And I was wondering, OK, who's in that and why are they there and why is that gone there and why could it not be uh, apartments rather than a commercial block? And uh, wasn't what was there before? How does it all fit in? And that got me interested in what was change that was taking place that perhaps I'd ignored over the past decade. And then as we got to spend a little bit more time, remember in 2020, we were allowed to move outside our counties for a while and we would had a sort of a month when we could holiday around the country. Even driving down the country, seeing all the new windmills that were going up or all the new factories or going and visiting a, a hotel that you could stay in for, and finding out that the ownership of all of these things had changed quite dramatically as a result of the crash. And then it comes to what does this mean and what are the implications? Now, implications for housing are are one thing and we can talk about that in a moment. Commercial property, is there an argument that says, you know, office blocks and hotel buildings and various other commercial properties... Does it really matter who owns them? You know, if you take a city like Manhattan or London, we, you know, we don't know who owns a lot of those office blocks, but it doesn't necessarily impinge on the city or people's lives. Do you think it matters? It can matter. I mean, you know rural Ireland very well and you know your own native Monaghan or living in Donegal and the importance that it is, for example, as to who owns hotels and keeps them open because they become very, very important as local employers and bringing people in who actually spend money. And we had the crisis as a result. It's maybe we've all forgotten a little bit about COVID or we tried to forget about what it was like during COVID. I think an awful lot of us have forgotten what it was like 15 years ago when the crash and I'm sure there are many people listening will say, well, I still remember because I remember how badly it impacted me and I lost my job or I had an enormous amount of debts or I couldn't pay the mortgage and the rest of it. But people tend to sort of move on. But if you do go back and look at that period of time, 
there would have been an awful lot of things that shut down and the hotel sector, for example, all around the country became a crisis and that impacted unemployment and we had emigration again. So that people came in and re-established ownership and took a, was important to all these local economies. And it goes beyond that. Even the sort of the commercial property construction boom that has taken place in the last decade was essential at a time when we had no building going on. Now, you can argue very strongly that maybe we overdid it and that took people away from building that they could have been doing for apartment blocks or houses and whatever. But it is all very, very important to the sort of the overall economic life of the country and how we live. When it comes to housing, initially after the crash, there was a sort of a move towards saying, do we really need to be a nation nation of homeowners? Maybe we should be more like the continental Europeans and it should be rental. Now people are seeing that ownership of a home is a very, very significant thing in a person's life and can actually be the difference between, you know, the future trajectory of lives having some sort of social st- financial stability in the future. There's a big advantage to owning a home. I think this is one of the most important things and this is something I do try very much to address in the book as well because about a decade ago and it happened quietly perhaps without enough debate in relation to it all there was this feeling that maybe so too many people had overstretched themselves in trying to buy houses during the Celtic Tiger era or apartments and then got themselves in enormous problems and we said never let that happen again and there was almost this assumption developed that people are better off being tenants and that it would be cheaper for them. But that didn't take into it into account an awful lot of things such as personal desire to own. To have a mortgage paid off by the time you reach your pension age that you're still not having to pay for your accommodation. Even just the ambition to actually to make things better for yourself. And there's been an awful lot of, I suppose... Assumptions have been made as to what people would actually want or not, which have proven to be incorrect, that people would necessarily want to live in apartments rather than houses. Now, there's very good reasons, you can say environmentally, why apartments are better than houses, but it doesn't necessarily work out that that's what people want or that they're actually financially better to build, they become more expensive and then the rents go up. So there's all these complications and then we have all the discussion about how the vulture funds came in and they probably were very important in relation to taking ownership of the commercial blocks and helping sort out the situation with the banks. But then when it came to housing, this is something that's become highly controversial in recent years and yet what a lot of us forget is that these institutional landlords have effectively taken over from the private individuals who were buying second, third and fourth homes during the Celtic Tiger era, that the amount of housing available to purchase for people as a proportion is about the same. It's just been a change in the type of landlord that we have. And often it's the state is actually moving in to stop people from buying by buying up the housing estates. And the other issue around housing is is land and land ownership mm. and, and land that might be zoned or even have planning permission f- for housing and, and it doesn't happen. Are we better off with that land being owned by very, very wealthy international funds that will always sort of have the money to develop it? It's there, as opposed to having, like after the crash, we had a lot of Irish developers who owned it and they were broke and they had massive debt, so they weren't in a position to develop it. But equally, if it's owned by a very, very wealthy international fund with access to loads of money, they'll say, well, we don't have to build on this. Let's wait. And they did wait. And that's been part of the thing. They waited and see, saw the land values go up so that they could make more money. And that, that is the nature of capitalism to a certain extent. But 
it, it's a difficult question to actually answer as to what is actually the best. But I think one of the problems that I try and highlight in the book as well is that we're actually not planning. We didn't plan for and we're not dealing with the incredible recovery in the economy that we have and the expansion of the population. And a lot of the county development plans that were set up for 2022 to 2028 were always, the counties were doing things almost oblivious to what was going on with the population increase and what was going on in other counties. So you have your likes of your Wicklows, your Meads and your Kildares suddenly pulling back on the amount of housing that they allowed to be built and that there's perfectly good serviced land available which can't be built on until after 2028. It's madness. And the other part of it then, one of the subtitle of the book is how we became tenants in our own land and what we can do about it. And you look at the question of existing buildings and vacant buildings and it is extraordinary how many there are, but it's also complicated to convert them. Isn't it's it? very complicated to convert. I mean, but I think it's one of the real shames, particularly when you go around rural Ireland, and you see all the towns that have become hollowed out. The shops are all closing. All of the space above, which could be used for flats and apartments, and it, it just it creates an air of. It makes things look really bad in a lot of these towns. A lot of towns are very good at sort of trying to, you know, locals are very active in trying to make them look prettier and the rest of it. But it's very hard to make something look pretty when so many of the buildings are derelict. There are so many buildings, and this happens in cities as well. And even the walk that I would have to work every day, and I come down places like Anger Street or whatever, and you just see over the shops, some of the shops are not vacant and they're becoming derelict overhead there could be people living here. When I first moved to Dublin and Cork in 1988, 1987, sorry, I lived in Dame Street for a year, uh, very close to what is now a solicitor's office, but it was in a, a flat that I shared with a couple of lads and it was great to be able to live in the city centre and then move on to various places when you go progress through And that life. feels more and more difficult to be able it's, to but, do now. Yeah, and, it's, and so there are so many places that you look, well, why aren't we using this? Why aren't we using the land and the property that we have to the benefit of everyone. And this is what it all comes down to. This is why I'm interested in the topic as to who really owns Ireland, because it's then, what use can we make of it for a better life for all of us? OK, it's a fascinating read. Who Really Owns Ireland by Matt Cooper. Thank you very much for joining us on the programme.